ladies and gentlemen, uh, you're listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, I'm Brian Cook. Uh, with me in the studio today is Professor, Professor Oliver Feltham. Um, Oliver is a professor of philosophy at the American University of Paris. Um, he is perhaps best known to uh, English audiences as the translator into English of, of uh, Badis Lettre et Levermont, of, of being an event. Um, uh, he's also um, written uh, the important book on, on Badiou, Alain Badiou, Life Theory, um, uh, made contributions to uh, the volume edited by Justin Clemens and Russell Grigg on Lacan's 17th seminar, uh, Jacques Lacan and the Other Side of Psychoanalysis, and uh, more recently has um, been working on a theory of political action, whose um, uh, the first volume of which um, on which centers around the English Civil War in the New Model Army is called Anatomy of Failure. Um, Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Oliver, uh, first my uh, our signature question, if I can ask you, Oliver, how did philosophy ruin your life? Well, I left my home, I left my family, <laughs> embarked on a new life, basically. Um, and ever since then, I've been, you know, riven by the question about whether that was a good idea or not. <laughs> Um, when I was a teenager, I remember scratching into my desk, liberty, equality, and fraternity, <laughs> as, you know, three words that deserve to not be written on paper on my desk, but into my desk. Yes. And um, I'm still angry about those three words and how difficult it is to actually articulate those or to find those yes. um, in, in life, basically. Um, and... I have always had um, philosophical questions bothering me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if one wanted to go psychoanalytic, they're basically um, linked to my proper name, which ah. signifies the bringer of peace. Yes. And so fundamentally, I started thinking um, and started having questions from an experience of, of conflict, dissension and violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing... Nothing terribly physical in terms of violence, in terms of my own experience. This is not a biographical claim. It's simply um, more a kind of, um, I would say, sort of existential, almost metaphysical violence. Yes. Um, there's one thing I've never been able to accept, and that is quite simply the difference in between England and Australia. You, you were born in England, yes. I was I, born I in England, yeah. Um, and we emigrated to Australia when I was seven years old with the promise of going back to England as soon as the... Um, effects of Thatcher's cuts on the welfare state <laughs> had been absorbed and it was uh, a better a better city to work in again for dentists basically that was the idea but then of course um, Thatcher's project continued yes and so we stayed in Australia and so most of my teen you know most of my my youth and my teenage years were spent feeling as though I was in exile and I'd been denied the return to the motherland that I'd always wanted yes um, and then Theatre offered one way out of that conundrum, so I discovered theatre, that was a real event for me, mm -hmm. when I was eight years old in Australia. And then again at the University of Sydney, um, philosophy offered me um, a way of dealing with that utter divorce that I saw between English sensibility and Australian sensibility, in between the English landscape and the Australian landscape. Um, in between the, the place of culture and relationship to nature in England and um, its sort of displacement in Australia. Can you tell me how you uh, saw, and I suppose uh, perhaps it, how, how do you see that difference in sensibility? between? Well, 
I suppose you I saw think, more on the emphasis on the past. Yeah. I think that basically for me, and, and I'm, I'm still concerned, um, I've been thinking recently about whether or not a lot of my feelings are actually coloured by a kind of settler discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I kind of, in my lifetime, repeated the entire European settler experience. <laughs> and it's, you know, and, and it's, there's a kind of one sense in which it's be, it was deeply wrong for me. And one thing is quite simply that my senses felt stripped raw um, when we came to Sydney. And I was just so obsessed with the the violence of the light, the oh, yeah. sound of the cicadas, mm-hmm. um, how quickly my skin would burn yes. as a young boy, yes. um, at how heavy the raindrops were and how dense they were, at how dangerous the sea was, at how many insects could kill you and how big they were, how sharply defined the buildings were. Mm-hmm. And all of this in contrast to, to England. I remember going back in 85, coming off the plane um, in December uh, in Heathrow, and my brother just said, Mum, is, is that the sun or is that the moon? <laughs> and it was, it was the sun. It? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I just thought, where are the edges of the buildings? Right. Because there was mist and there was fog. Yes, yes. And so um, just simply at an aesthetic level, it just made absolutely no sense to me that my that my family and all of my loved ones could have lived in places that were so different yes. and that there could be an entirely coherent family narrative of, of hope um, and of coming to Australia literally as the lucky country from, us, from um, Britain, both times to, to escape um, bad economic situations. The first, for the first generation, it was after the Second World War, it was escaping mm. rationing Yes, yes. Um, for my grandfather. So he made the decision to emigrate with, with my father. So we have this repetitive cycle in my family. But it was, it was really an aesthetic shock. And so in Australia, I feel as though my senses have been stripped raw. And it's just a question of intensity. And the funny thing is, is I write poetry when I'm in Australia and I do not write poetry when I'm in France. That's, that's so extraordinary. I, I, yeah. Yeah, how, would you, you, how would you account for that in relation to, like, because you uh, like associate your poetic muse with, with that intensity of, of sensory experience that you got used to and it's that overwhelming sensory experience? Yeah, or... I, just, I just think that, I mean, for me, I just have to write poetry. If I'm here for any length of time, I have to write poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a way of trying to... Um, the whole country feels as though it's been pushed right up higher into the sky. Um, and there's a sense of absolute exposure for me here. And I think that I'm filled with... Um, Anxiety. I'm reminded of um, in Badu's theory of the subject. There's a, a particular moment in both in which both like angoisse, anxiety, mm. and courage are like the structuring affects. Yes. And for me, that's always been the case in Australia. I mean, there have been periods of intense solitude for me here, which have required a lot of courage. And um, there are periods of intense anxiety linked to um, death and and significant illness. Um, suffered by by loved ones not that that doesn't happen in Europe as well but but it's been part of the anxiety here and there's one image that always struck me um on the on the like above Bondi on the way up to South Heads um the coastline just becomes cliffs and there's a particular moment where you have a gorge that comes right into the right inside um into the headland and you can see across and you suddenly get a profile view of the headland and there's one house and i saw it at twilight so you've got the golden light coming through the window hmm. family's life hmm. 
<laughs> there and you look at the house and there's only about 20 meters from the back door to the cliff edge and the cliff edge is undercut and down below you like 25 meters below you you see the waves pounding in upon the boulders like continually eating away yes at the bottom at the base of that cliff and you just see this life this family's life this you know pale european construction <laughs> with a fence in a backyard perched above you know these sublime forces of nature so it's it's you know been an experience basically of of the sublime yes from a very very comfortable middle class um english existence in wimbledon you know in which everything was cozy so there's a whole set there's a whole um mythology um which you know i only managed to to really interrupt by by moving to france yeah, I could. I, I mean, I can see why you call that a, a microcosm of the settler experience. I mean, I think this is what happened as you know, as soon as European settlers got here. There were so many people saying the kind of things that you like. How could anyone live in a place like this? Like, isn't it? Is it not a kind of vision of hell? Right? Like, of, of kind of the the utter hubris of of human beings, of, of particularly of European civilization, trying to trying to um, repeat itself here or to, to construct yeah. something in the heat of that blistering sun, you know, amidst, yeah. amidst these particularly deadly, <laughs> um, um, you know, amidst deadly native fauna and the, the endless, the mosquitoes and the flies and, and so on. That's, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. But I suppose experiences of, of, um, exile, I mean, though, though obviously the, there's a very interesting personal trajectory there. I think that, that, that sense of, of exile, and and also of injustice is 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 quite common in people's in the kind of philosophical ruination that people go through that sets philosophical desire into into motion this this sort of um, insistence i mean every, everyone i know who studied philosophy i think yeah it, it, it's unquestionably a matter of desire in in the lacanian sense as opposed to as opposed to demand right like you mm -hmm. never there's there's not something you you can you can ask it for or at least you might have a bunch of demands but they're they're kind of ridiculous ones like like how can we how can we not live in a horrible world or an unjust world or something like that but then and philosophy doesn't offer you any easy solutions but there's something that makes you keep coming back you know madly like keeps scratching and 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 and, and itch like and yeah it's, it's a way of being able to live with the question and yeah. um and sustain it and be honest about it and uh so you know i you know i had a i had a question about um, what is right action in, yes. in, a, in a political milieu? Still, still a, a question that's fundamental to your work. I, yeah. I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, also, quite simply, what would genuine peace look like? And is it just um, an illusion, a children's story? Yes, this is your proper name. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and how do you actually come through? How do you? I mean, there's that Michael and Dutch novel coming through slaughter, but. Yeah. It's, you know, how do you come through conflict? How do you come through violence? Even the, I mean, even just at a very basic level, the schoolyard yes. um, experience of violence. I mean, yes. you know, high school, the, the generation that went through our generation, there was still a fight um, just about, you know, three or four times a week. I remember this. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a jungle. Like, like, I, I mean, I think, let's marry, but lots of people have, have, have said, you know, I mean, 
they, they can sound fatuous at sometimes, but there is there is something about about high schools that can feel like one of those you know those prison experiments or right like you know yeah. or, or, or you know it, it gives you an answer to the question how can people become guards in concentration camps and so on you sort of think no, quite easily yeah. yeah yeah I mean it's it's an absolutely horrific microcosm and yeah you know that you've got collective action problems as well like nobody would take on the bully yes yes indeed. unless it was the mad kid yes or it was another bully yes. Or um, if the bully did something completely unacceptable, yes. you know, like to, to a sibling or whatever. So you had, you know, you had all of the ethical questions were immediately there and you had all of the subjective positions as well. But, yes. you know, denial, uh, just getting on with people, not rocking the boats, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was a very, it was a very um, intense experience. And I've got no doubt, you know, I have friends um, who who went through, who continued on in London, um, who are still very good friends. And um, certainly they did not lead idyllic lives mm. in London as teenagers. And I have absolutely no regrets about having um, having moved to Australia. I think it was, you know, a brilliant saving gesture as well mm. um, on the part of my parents. And it opened up horizons in a way that I can only hope to do for my own children as well, um, such that you can understand that there's more than one way of um, building a life and um, and simply articulating culture with nature as well. Hmm. This is this last element that you mention about uh, uh, and, and you mention in relation to um, your responses to English and England, Australia, and culture and nature is kind of um, uh, new to me. Like I, I I wasn't familiar with this concern in in your work about yeah. culture and nature. Is it something that comes out more in your in your poetry, which I, I do not know. No, there's always I mean there's always been a sense in which so I have actually got a project um called the Northern Paris Circular, um which is supposed to be um a sonnet cycle. Right. Um some of them have are written in which I make the the, the, the poet makes um his way from Place de la Nation, mm. all the way around to Arc de Triomphe, mm -hmm. uh, following um, Line 2, mm -hmm. basically, um, Metro Line 2. And that takes you through an incredible cross-section of um, Parisian um, society through all kinds of different arrondissements. Mm. And um, the idea there, that one of the ideas behind that is that, is that behind the street there is a true life of the, of the street, um, and one of the things that's always obsessed me has been the persistence of things like gutters and tarmac hmm. and walls beyond all of the accidents that are happening every single day. Like right. Again, it's something like, you know, I mean, it's something that, 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 that our mutual friend Justin Clemens insists on, which is that philosophy begins in, not in wonder, which is like the lovely way of translating Aristotle's term, but it, it begins in stupefaction. Yeah, oh, like yes, it, yes. You know, it begins yes, in like... Yes complete bewilderment and yes. just feeling lost before an absolutely brutal fact yes um and i think that for me like if you know doing philosophy is also a way of remaining true to oneself as a child yes and as a child i was always concerned by the brutality of facts the brutality mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. distance the brutality of the hardness of of asphalt when you hit it when you fell off your bike that kind of thing and I just couldn't fathom the difference in between <laughs> my will yes. and my way of being able to, you know, try to shape the world or to intervene in the world and the brutality of facts. Like it's yes, almost yes. like a, a, a Sartre. Sartre, and I was thinking the same, know, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing, you know, the thing about the, this, this sort of initial premise or, or, or spur to poetry 
is the idea that how is it possible for a street to continue to exist in a way that is impervious to all of the people's lives that are carried out across it and yet at the same time it is marked in one way or another by those lives yes. there is you know there is erosion there yes. are stains there are yes. marks yes um and also uh, a big question about how one and the same street can become so very different in according to the light and according to the seasons so you know in 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 the paper that uh, that I gave at this conference um that question took the form of uh, a distinction between contexts for action that are different versus contexts for action that are disjoint or disjunct where there is no passage. So I think that, you know, um, in my philosophical work, um, that question returns. Mm-hmm. This, yeah, right. This, this question of the sort of the brute intransigence of matter, but also of, of reconfiguring spaces. All right, I, I want to talk to you more, more about this. I mean, we'll, we'll explore uh, some of your, uh, your work on, on action and the politics of action, but perhaps I can, perhaps I can start by, by asking, um, kind of continuing the biographical story about how you, how you discovered um, the work of, of Alain Badiou and how you came to translate uh, being an event. And uh, in particular, um, to write the um, your extraordinary uh, doctoral thesis with um, its wonderful um, title uh, from Aristotle as as fire burns right which I which I think is 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 not exactly despite the centrality of Badiou to that to that work it's it's not exactly it's not motivated by the desire to write an exegesis of Badiou I think no. it's motivated by a pre-existing problem that yeah. is to do with some of the things we've already been talking about so. So the, uh, I mean, the original thesis um, was called On Designing the Commons. Uh, Less good title. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, you know, blame Jean-Luc Nancy for that. Uh, <laughs> and There's I, a lot of for. Yes. So I was, um, my supervisor at the time was um, Tony Fry, um, who was a sort of ex-Marxist Heideggerian who was one of the first to get into um, environmental thinking and specifically to try and invent an entire discipline self-handed which is um, which was that of um, ecological design so he was like this, you know pioneering thinker and practitioner in the power department of fine arts at the University of Sydney and with him you could start to think the conditions of a critical practice um, on the basis of contemporary philosophy with an engagement with actual material practices. I mean, yes. that was a great challenge. Yes. So for, for myself and for um, a, a colleague and a good friend, Cameron Tonkin-Wise, um, and uh, another friend, um, Andrew Lewis, the, we had formed a, a small anti-institutional <laughs> theory and performance group called Perry, you know, after the Greek Perry. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and we yes. used to perform... Around. Into, yes, exactly, around yeah. concerning... Yes. And um, we used so. to... Um, perform interventions at conferences, then also in the university's orientation week. And one of our lines was that we were engaged in the critique of critique, um, that we were that we had had enough. It was time to come to the end of critique and critical theory and to start some kind of affirmative practice. And we had this great critique of the university um, system as something that um, could generate signifiers 
but could not actually bring about any fundamental changes in mm. social practices. So we gave ourselves this impossible task of inventing new <laughs> social practices. And um, thanks to um, Tony Fry's generosity and, and his um, great erudition and, and uh, um, stimulation, I was able to you know, go further with those questions about what would a criti critical practice look like that would not presuppose or try to create a, a fused community, a community of the one, um, oh, using Nancy's words. I was just thinking, yeah. yeah so and the inoperative community. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, that, what, what he calls the, 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 the mythic community of... of exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's right. Right. Um, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm, we're not the same age, but I also, I also I remember the, the, the later 90s in, in Australian, Australian universities. I can definitely see... I think there were a lot of people who were getting very tired of a sort of um, compulsory and, and empty critical gesture right like mm -hmm. there was just, just every english paper everything that sort of um invoked derrida to then to then save some sort of relativist platitudes would would then sort of end with and this is a sort of explosive action that will change the world and and yeah it was very very tedious and i can yeah, understand there was a lot of yeah. there was a lot of theatrics yeah um, and you know one of the things that, that we did in this little group perry was we actually did performances we did little interventions we we made this bizarre contraption this uh interpretive machine um <laughs> and installed it in the orientation week uh so we were engaged in performance um the fourth year thesis went you know it went well um and so i got into a phd program immediately yeah um the phd research was a prolongation of the question that i'd you know started to address in the in the honors thesis and at the time i was reading um i kept reading jean-luc nancy i was reading mm. blanchot on the innovable community again yes um i s discovered jizek and i was reading you know what is now the early jizek and of mm. course i loved his early work which, which um, is the good stuff yeah. <laughs> yeah um and what I found is that uh, I just hit a dead end with Nancy yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and with um, Blanchot. Like, I just could not see how you could get any kind of differentiation of a new kind of practice if all works themselves continually undid themselves anyway. Like, if, if yes, any indeed, indeed. stable work whatsoever as a work of community was always already undoing and destabilizing itself. And if the only task was to expose that, then that was going to make absolutely no difference to your, you know, to your actual um, practice. So I, I felt as though I'd hit a dead end. And at that time, um, I'd already made up my mind to go to France. And thanks to the, the conditions of the um, Australian Postgraduate Research Award back then, you were allowed to go overseas for a year. Mm. Wow. If, if you could justify it according to your thesis topic. And of course I could because it was on, you know, it was based on French philosophy. And I'd actually done um, an essay on what does television do to the event. Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, one of Tony Fry's prompts. And so I'd gone to Fisher Library and, you know, probably for the first time and, and also I have to admit the last time I actually did a catalogue search <laughs> and did some proper research and, you know, wrote the event into a database and it popped up Lettre l'événement. Ah. So I went down to the philosophy section on the first floor and pulled this, you know, big, fat, Huge, white scary book yes. out. Yes. And I had been doing um, a year of French, so I could just basically pick out some of the words um, in the uh, contents. And then I just came across all of the set theory 
mm, formulae mm, mm. and just thought, oh my God, this is not for me and put it back quite quickly. So I, I remember, the funny thing was even before um, having you know, signed the actual contract to translate it, I, I, I remembered that moment. It had been a significant book for me. And when I went to Paris and I finally arrived there, um, there was this um, wonderful Australian postgraduate, um, I want to say her name was Melinda Cooper, who was working with Tony Negri mm. on time and anxiety and Lacan and Deleuze. And mm -hmm. she just said to me, look, you should go. There's this um, philosopher here whose seminars are open. They're at Jussieu, you know, in Paris. Mm -hmm. set. You should just go along um, and go to his lectures and see what you think. And so I had these really heavy Wednesdays where I go to Jacques Alain Miller at, oh, um, yeah, at midday. Yeah, oh, I go okay. and see Derrida at four o'clock, <laughs> and then I go and see Badiou at eight o'clock in the evening, and um, that's when I discovered um, Badiou's work properly. Yes, was you know trying to you know trying to make out what he was saying in French, um, sitting in his lectures, which were the lectures on Saint Paul. Uh, I, I I never knew this. I didn't I didn't know this story. And your your story of encountering being an event in French in the library, seeing flicking through it, seeing the set theory, and and putting it back on the shelf. I think that that is um, puts you in a perfect position to have been the translator of that book because I think you are neither the f you would neither have been the first nor the last person to do that with the, yeah. with the book. I mean, it remains it remains something that intimidates people uh, uh, about Badiou's work. Um, to this day. So what, but what was it, I mean, when listening to Badi, what was it that spoke to you, that spoke to this, this aporia you'd reached with, with Nancy and, uh, and Blanchot in, in tempting to it was, it was incredibly clear in the lectures on St. Paul, um, basically he was distinguishing in between three different discourses and their relationship to the event. Yes. You know? And the question was, um, it was the Greek um, discourse, it was the um, Judaic yes. discourse yes. Uh, of, the, of the Old Testament, basically, and then it was the Christic discourse, it was, you know, St. Paul's vision, or, you know, version yes. of, of Christ's message. And the question was simply, what is the form of discourse that is capable of welcoming the event as an event and not annulling its consequences? and not normalizing it yes. and actually extrapolating from it all of its possible um, implications for human practice. And for me that just struck um, a chord, it was like, um, you know, uh, an illumination. And uh, so, you know, and I was, you know, my French was still, was still very bad and I think that that actually saved me because I remember, <laughs> you know, Badiou has a, an incredibly deep voice um, yes. and I remember understanding him say, you know, this is a problem with the Judaic discourse of the law. The law, you know, forecloses the actual, you know, um, occurrence of the events. Um, with the Greek discourse, you have this vision of the cosmos in concentric circles, and there's no place for the event either. And with the Jewish, Jew, uh, and with um, the Christian, um, yeah, with the Christian, with Saint Paul's discourse, for the following reasons, you have a discourse which is capable of welcoming the event because of blah 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 blah. blah. I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't get the end of the sentence. I couldn't understand it. And I thought, my, you know, obviously it was like, you know, there was my, my unconscious was preventing me, you know, because it wouldn't have been that complicated. Like philosophy in French is not that complicated. The vocabulary is not that wide. It's, it's not Greek Latin vocabulary exactly. that we all use. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. not literature. It's not comedy. No, it's fairly simple. No, it's not like reading Stoddart or Bob. Yeah. That takes much longer. Yeah. Um, so because of that, you know, frustration, um, I wanted to find out what his answer was. Yes. So I kept going. And when I came back from that year, back to Sydney the first time, um, I got out the maths textbooks. You know, mm -hmm. I went to the maths department at the mm -hmm. University of Sydney. I, you know, borrowed out the books and, and 
worked out to my great relief that the kind of set theory that he was using was was bog standard. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The Z- ZFC being yeah, bog standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, but I mean, I, I imagine there's some. I mean, from what you've said, uh, I mean, it's, it's an obvious thing to say anyway. Continuity between the St Paul seminars and 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 the book that would become St Paul and the Foundations of Radical Universalism. But uh, was it the apart from apart from the sort of contingent. <laughs> fact of the, the failures of your French possibly under the pressure of your unconscious was it uh, in terms of the projects were you working on was it the was it the universalism was it the focus on the on, on the event on the on the tracing of consequences on the um, I, I suppose th- thinking of the importance of, of the category of failure failure for you in an yeah. of failure one of the things that, that I, I could guess it might have had something to do with it um, I suppose something that I uh, myself have always have always liked about Badiou is is his kind of um, indifference to I suppose I suppose failure, but or kind of kind of living in an epoch after a defeat. The way the way that yeah. for, for Badiou, you know, he, there's no kind of and especially in the '90s, there was a lot of this discourse of now after the age of every everything was after something. And, yes, you know, yes, the, of course, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that I mean there were a number of things that struck me about his work. First of all. It gave you complete license to um, read across the entire philosophical tradition, just completely ignore the the ideological and institutional divide between analytic and continental philosophy. So true, yeah. Which just makes absolutely no sense from a French perspective. Like, it's just laughable. It's a joke. You know, it's not even worth writing a book about. It's just, it doesn't exist. So, I mean, there are no, why would you stop reading philosophers at a certain point and say, well, they belong to another school or whatever. Because from, you know, from Badiou's perspective, you would start, you know, I was reading Quine. Yes. I was reading Tarski. Because you're in a philosophy department. Yeah, yeah I, was reading, I was reading Davidson. Yeah. Um, you know, I was looking at all kinds of different things. And especially I was concerned with um, his claims about formal writing. Yes. Um, and what a letter was as distinct from a signifier. And of course, all of these concerns are also very present in Lacan's, um, back then, his untranslated seminars, and they were actually unpublished as well, from seminar 10 through to 20 and on to 23 and so on. These were available in um, manuscript form, in photocopied form, um, from the library of the École de la Cause Freudienne. So you could go and read them, and in, like, Empire, you know, um, or Worst, you know, that kind of of, um, seminar you had Lacan's engagement with um, both logical paradoxes and with set theory. Yes, yes. And uh, so, you know, it, it was just an incredibly um, liberating yes, period yes. of just reading all over the, all over the place. Um, Not being bound to these parochial yeah. institutional divides, yeah. And then the other thing was that looking back at various narratives about the, the defeat of communism and, and the yes. whole sort of narrative of the defeat of the humanities project that I sort of like grew up with at University of Sydney. Yes. Um, that kind of sort of embattled um, in the bunkers kind of sense of defending this this precious jewel of the humanity. Yes. None of that was there either. There was just basically this new articulation of the universal as um, a new articulation of the universal in the particular. It's that simple. So yes. basically, yes. Um, in at the University of Sydney back then, what was presumed by the most part of my contemporaries was that any claim to universality was bad, yes, because it would erase a particular differences, you know, and, you know, yeah, a form of particularity, and that in fact any universal itself was but the projection of a particular. 
Indeed. So, yeah. So what you had is fragmentation. Yes. You had micropolitics. Yes. Um, and all you could do, the best you could do, was create a faction and then try and claim that that faction was virtuous because it was <laughs> subversive. And that, in fact, your faction, in the end, you had to make a claim to a kind of universal. You had to argue that it was the proletariat in that it was the undifferentiated or generic form of humanity per se. Otherwise, you just end up in factionalism. Yes. So what Badiou offered you was a way of thinking the universal as an address to people that was completely indifferent to who they were, where they came from, and what they did. This, this, gen, this is the generic. Yeah, is the, the generic. The generic yeah. And also, it was a universal that took form through successive practical inquiries. Like, how do you, how do you build a school... Um, under the aegis of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Yes. You know, so, I mean, one of, th one of the things I love about living in France, despite all the problems with the, the current Republican school, is that you walk under those three words when you go to school. Like, yes. they are inscribed on the yes. lintel above you. The um, words you've scratched into your desk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's still an absolutely unfinished project working out, um, you know, given the students that you have, how do you teach them in a spirit of not just liberty, but liberty and equality, and not just liberty and equality, but also fraternity? Yes. So that, for me, that's uh, a project that is universal in its address. It presupposes nothing about um, what a human being might be. Yes. And it's carried out as a practice. So this was the kind of thing that I was looking for um, in both the fourth year thesis and in the PhD. It was a model of a praxis. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and a universalist one, and one that was not... Uh, merely a sort of anemic empirical universal as you might get in something like uh, human rights discourse like you're, yeah. you're not you're, we're, we're not talking about a universal that's just like well we're all people or something like that you're talking about something that needs to be uh, well I suppose it brings us to, to the problem of political action that involves construction at the level yeah. of new um, new configurations of like alliances across class lines and ethnic lines and and the, you, you know what the sort of thing Badi talks about in the century in relation to um, uh, the, the the tent words from Celan's uh, anabasis and, yeah. and, and and so on something under which uh, something under which we can yeah yeah I mean I I I, hmm, I can absolutely understand the enthusiasm um, one would have upon discovering that for the first time and also being in the in a, in a context where you you had such freedom to to uh, uh, to to discover um, or, or or to have access to the to the um, yeah like like for instance all of Lacan's unpublished seminars and so yeah. yes of course that would have been an amazing intellectual emancipation okay so because we've put this question of um, political uh, of of the question of political action on the table I will come back to to bad you but because especially because you did this work some years ago like mm -hmm. 10 years ago and so on uh, and I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about your more recent work um let's start by talking about about um anatomy uh, anatomy of failure so this book there are a number of there are a number of things that i think would struck uh, strike any reader of, of of this book so on the one hand i would say uh there's a there's a kind of hmm vindication of, of a strange kind of vindication of Badi's work that I've seen in a, a number of his former um, or, or most eminent exegetes. There will be something like this, that, um, that almost all of the prominent 
um, interpreters, early translators and exegetes of Badiou, I feel, have not stayed as kind of Badiouians, like not mm -hmm. writing the fifth book on, you know, on, on, you know, what Badiou can do for you or something, but have, have taken something from him and gone on to sort of do these, these entirely independent projects. Like I'm thinking about Alberto Toscano's work, yes. Justin's work, yeah. Nina Power, um, Peter Hallward. Peter Hallward, obviously. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's right. Uh, uh, Peter, but particularly, um, actually I was particularly thinking of Peter Hallward because of his, his, his book on, on Haiti and, yeah. and Aristide, the damning the flood. And there's something about, um, uh, anatomy of failure which reminds me of 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 that book whereas uh, uh, whereas it, it's like there is a there is a badjuian hmm, uh arche right Some, somewhere going on there right that there is badju has played a role in the genesis of that book right and i think yeah. you can see it in uh yeah, the, the unapologetic uh, commitment to universalism, uh, uh, among other things, that the, the still searching for that for that that kind of um, radical universality in, in, in politics, a certain uh, mm, desire to concentrate things into theses rather mm -hmm. than rather than uh, sort of be bogged down in, in in empirical details, like to cut through to the essential in that kind of Maoist way that one finds in, in Badiou's style. I think, I think there are various signs in which Badiou's influence is present. And yet the book breaks with, with uh, the, the book is not something you could obviously deduce a Badiouian would write. I mean, among yeah. other things, and something that I want to ask you is, um, clearly in that in that book and in As Fire Burns, not that I would ever say that you were an Aristotelian, but um, Aristotle is, is often posed by Badiou as his kind of great enemy, right? Whereas yeah. I, think, I think Aristotle is actually a kind of, uh, by contrast, a, a condition for your, for your thought, not that you're in any way an Aristotelian, yeah. you don't have a vision of a teleological vision of nature, or you, you don't seem interested to me in the virtues or any of, any of these sort of traditional Aristotelian schemas, and yet, Aristotle, there's something for you. Can you tell me a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit so more about Aristotle? So, I um, first started reading Aristotle and also Plato um, at the suggestion of my supervisor, Russell Greek. Yes, um, Who, yeah. you know, must have had one of those moments when a supervisor gets frustrated with their supervisee and just said, look, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> Why don't you start in the beginning of philosophy? <laughs> Good and advice, really, thought, yeah. <laughs> Why not? You know, <laughs> indeed, and, indeed. and I had been, you know, in my undergraduate years, I'd read far too much contemporary French philosophy, yeah. and I hadn't. I knew that I needed to go back and and do the history of philosophy, um, at least, you know, in a kind of autodidact kind of style. And so, I was really struck in both Plato and Aristotle how apt my topic was for their work. Because my topic was. What is the difference in between praxis? Yes, um, and A action in yeah. Aristotle's sense, yeah. And what I called functional work. So one of the things that um, yeah has always um, concerned me, you know, being English and, and and wanting to always be no nonsense, no fuss, pragmatic, <laughs> and so on. I'd always been concerned with the shape of efficacy and efficiency. Yes. And um, what it meant to get something done and, and what the costs were of that kind of drive to completion. And so it was praxis versus functional work. That was the question of the thesis. What's the difference in between the two? Yes. Um, through an ontology. What difference does Plato's ontology make to this? What difference does Aristotle's ontology make to this question? And, of course, Plato and Aristotle talk about work, functional work, craft, all the time. Yes. And what struck me was um, that Aristotle's metaphysics is built out of a consideration of 
the construction of new substances. What is substance? Well, let's look at how a new substance is produced. Yes. There are the four causes. And um, so I had this engagement with, with the metaphysics of production. Yes. In Aristotle during the writing of the PhD. And then another author that my um, supervisor had put on my horizon was Rainer Schumann and his mm. great book on being an actor. Ah. Because, um, you know, Tony Fry used to say, look, if you read only one book of commentary on Heidegger, if you want to learn how to read Heidegger properly, you've got to read Schumann. Mm. Um, and so I read that, and that's where he has this, this great critique of productivist metaphysics. Yes. So what's actually happened... Um, over the last maybe eight years or so, is I actually started teaching Plato and Aristotle to our freshmen, to our undergraduates. Mm. And I taught this, you know, lovely course called Love and Friendship, you know, <laughs> just to drag in the students. And so I used to, you know, hammer home to them. I said, don't let anybody ever tell you that philosophy is not practical. This is the most useful thing you're going to learn whilst you're at university. I'm going to tell you and explain to you Aristotle's Answer to the question, what is happiness? Right. And if there's one thing that you retain from university, this is a good thing to retain because it's going to tide you over through various crises that you're going to have. Happiness is not a state of mind. It's not a feeling. It's something you do. Yes. If you want to be happy, you've got to do things in a particular way. It's a form of ac activity. Even, yeah. Even, which I think even with, with that sense of, which also has that sense of work in it, as in, as in a form of energeia, like, yes. like that focus on the, yeah. the ergon, the work, as well as poiesis, pr yeah, production. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, in the recent work, I've been playing the Aristotle of the Nicomachean Ethics yes. against the Aristotle of the Metaphysics. Yes. Um, I've the also done, substance, the Aristotle yeah, substance, yes. Yeah, and also I've done work on, on the physics as well, actually, on, mm -hmm. on the nature of movement and the physics, and asked the question, you know, do you always have to presuppose substance in order to think movement? Is it possible to have a thought of movement outside this um, supposition of, of substance? So Aristotle, yeah, remains, um, uh, you know, I mean, he, he, it's teaching material for me as well as a, a continual interlocutor. And, of course, the kind of ontology of action that I'm trying to develop at the moment for the sequel to Anatomy of Failure involves a very serious breach with Aristotle, yes. which is quite simply, you know, if you ditch the supposition of substance, whether in the form of uh, a matter that a production will form or in the sense of a pre-existing agent, in a, like an efficient cause who acts, um, can you still talk about action? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a problem you raise explicitly in Anatomy of Failure. So I'll, I'll say something about the first chapter in the in the moment. But but the 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 first the first chapter of that book poses the the, the question of political action. I'll return to that later. The second um, talks about a, a a a concrete situation of the of the new model army and its relationship to the levelers and agitators and up to the up to the failure uh, like after the Putney debates and and the intervention of another of your namesakes Cromwell. But the third yes. the third <laughs> chapter an evil Cromwell, not yes. a not a peace bringer, but the yeah. the, the, the the scourge of Ireland and so yes. on. Um, but in the third chapter you having having analyzed this this extraordinary political circumstance that I, I hope to um series of political events which i hope to talk to you about in a moment you talk about a kind of um evacuation of the category of, of action that occurs in 17th century political thought as opposed to i mean so, so you've on the one hand you've got this model of political action yeah. in what the levelers and agitators are doing in the new model army during the english revolution but then you have sort of 
contemporary with this, or roughly contemporary with this, the political philosophy that comes out of this that evacuates action, and you, you suggest um, even that it's the it's the desubstantialization, as in as in the removal of the category of, of substance, right? That that with substance, and we know all the reasons why substance has to has to go, it's metaphysically mm. untenable in all sorts of ways. But with the removal of substance, there also follows the removal of, of action. Um, uh, so 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 my sense is that you think that um, that um, what's interesting about Aristotle is he has a theory of action which despite the fact that it's attached to this substance metaphysics, whereas yeah. the 17th century thinkers, they get rid of substance, but they also get rid of of action with it. And how does one think action without uh, without substance? Is that... Is that yeah, accurate? that's... Is... I mean, the, the move in Hobbes is to develop an answer to the question about whether a, a multitude mm. can act. And it's, of course... No. It's, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's the multitude will only ever be passive and hysterical, yes, um, and will be moved and orientated from without. And the only case in which a multitude can actually act is through all of the multitude just so happening to authorize the one actor that is the sovereign who acts in their name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So actually, the sovereign is a double agent. Yes. Right? So the only <laughs> indeed, agent indeed. that you huh. have is a double agent. Huh. And in fact, when you're acting. You know, the fundamental action that occurs in Hobbes' system is simply the action of the social contract, the, contract, yeah. the action of authorization. Yeah. Yeah. And in complete contrast to Aristotle, where action is exceptional and it happens in a singular situation and the corresponding knowledge is prudence and not technical knowledge, in Hobbes, when you act, you act just like everybody else. And you are absolutely forced to do so, so through a rational calculation yes. of your survival chances in the state of nature. Yes. So everybody else, because we, because of the um, the laws of nature, because everybody has access to reason and will reason about their survival chances in the same way, then everybody will unanim- you know, unanimously and simultaneously authorize one governmental body, the sovereign, yes. to act in their name. So you've completely erased the singular and the exceptional status of action. Yes. And then the supposed agent of political action is nothing but a double agent. So you get this kind of evacuation. Um, mm. And then also what's interesting is that the, the, the category of the people, the category of the subjects of the sovereign, um, is also evacuated in terms of any kind of thick sense of subjectivity because conscience itself is shown to be beyond the reach of the law, beyond the reach of the sovereign. The contents of conscience do not intervene in any way in the rational calculation that leads you to project authority into the sovereign. And so you've got two empty placeholders, in a sense. Um, and you have, and yet you still have this one exclusive actor who dominates the entire political field. And the rebel is not so much to be prescribed. The, me- the rebel is impossible. Because as soon as a subject disenfranchises the sovereign and says, I want to leave this territory, I no longer want to obey the civil law, at that moment, exactly, they are thrown out into the state of nature and they are no longer a subject to the sovereign. So even the enunciation, the declaration of rebellion, of sedition, is impossible within that conceptual framework. Like, you immediately negate your status as a subject. And then because you're in the state of nature, of course, the sovereign can still do things with regard to you. Yes. Because you're an enemy of the state. Yes. And the sovereign exists both within 
civil society and also outside because of course the sovereign has relationships to other sovereigns and as we know it's the state of nature um, in between different nation states in Hobbes' system. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This. Yeah. So this is this exceptionality of the the sort of sovereign being imminent and um, extraneous to the the, the social order is, is something that, that we find mentioned in in Agamben among others. But there there are lots of um, things I'd like to pick you up on on in that in that last comment about about Hobbes. So one of the things I was thinking when you mentioned conscience, right? Yeah. So is is the way in which um, say, say, I suppose through the through the medieval Thomist tradition, you know, you have the the great, which is essentially a, a form of Aristotelianism. You get you get that a great emphasis on on well, conscious on syndesis, and and then and then you get all of that stuff in Hobbes that opposes Aristotle. I mean, the first obviously from the mechanistic. Uh, the 17th century metaphysics, but I think more significantly from what you're saying, all of the stuff towards the end of the book on the kingdom of darkness, which is yes. polemicizing against the Catholic Church and so on, but particularly with regards to the idea that there, there could be any difference between religion and things like conscious, conscience and obedience to the sovereign, and, and so like that, 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 that's, you're, you're not allowed to sort of split church and uh, like like to have a different allegiance to uh, an idea of what is right according to the gods or, yeah, yeah absolutely i mean but the thing is is that you know one of the things that i wanted to do in anatomy of failure was to actually without being um, a specialist in hobbes nevertheless to actually try and spend a little bit of time reading the the, the you know, the last two volumes, volume three and volume four of the Leviathan, mm -hmm. to talk about the kingdom of darkness and specifically to look at his treatment of how um, the early church worked, how, you know, primitive Christianity yes. actually spread. And yes. I looked at his um, considerations of the experience of conversion mm -hmm. and what actually is at stake and what is the minimal belief whereby you convert and declare yourself as a Christian, and it being quite simply that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, yes. That he reduces yes. all of Christianity to that one proclamation. And there is this absolutely astonishing moment in Hobbes when he talks about the undoing of the three knots of ecclesiastical authority. Mm. Um, and uh, the first one being the divorce of, of of the Protestant Church from the Catholic Church, so you know the knot of papal authority, and the next one being the knot of the king's authority over the religion that should be practiced in the land through the English Civil War. Yes, um, you know many stories, of course, back then being believed about it. The one sole trigger being um, uh, the king's interventions with regard to the Common Prayer Book in, in ah, Scotland. Yeah, right, right, right. So. Right. So hmm. that's where conflict erupted over the, you know, the king's right to actually intervene yes. in, and, and to enforce conformity over religious rights. Yes. And then finally it was the authority of the bishops yes, that was undone indeed. as well. Yes. And so he actually says here in England we find ourselves in the condition of the primitive um, Christians um, with a choice whether or not to follow Apollon or Cephas or, or, or Paul in terms of how we are actually going to follow, follow Christ. And it's and, Paul in a sense, right? Yeah, well, and you, and so you, yeah. well, you have this moment of, of exposure and choice yes, in, yes. in the middle of the... And, and you have this moment of the sort of multiplication of possible contexts for, for religious practice yes. um, during the 
during the English Civil War. And I found, I mean, that's a side of Hobbes that you don't get that often. That's so yeah. true. No, no, and that was that was actually kind of a, I mean, even when you touch on that, but that's kind of a, a revelation, especially because, because yeah, you, I mean, something else you talk about in the same uh, chapter is, I think, I think usually, if Hobbes going to be mentioned at all in sort of continental uh, philosophy, it will be uh, often as a uh, just just through the through the Hobbes uh, Spinoza opposition with yeah. Spinoza as, as the sort of as as the good guy, Hobbes as the bad guy, Spinoza yeah. the Republican. Hobbes is Hobbes uh, reveals the dark side of, of liberalism through the, the focus on you know you can have you can have liberty, but but as soon as you want security, you you surrender liberty in in the in the name of security, or you or you trespass on on natural right. But your book does something entirely different. I um, uh, say, for instance, you, in a strange way, you bring Hobbes and Spinoza together, even though you, you argue that Spinoza does not evacuate action totally. Mm. You say he has this participatory um, um, model yeah. of action that you, that you I, th I think, finally doesn't satisfy you. But, but, but you, yeah, could you talk to me a bit about, about how your, your relationship I've been, Spinoza? you know, I've been um, upbraided for my, my Hegelian reading of Spinoza sure. quite, quite likely yeah. by um, my good friend and colleague Filippo De Lucchese. Um, who's a, a committed Spinozist? Yeah, and respectable thing. To be yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I stand, I stand corrected, and I have actually been um, spending a lot more time um, working on Spinoza. I recently wrote a piece on judgment in Spinoza and Hobbes, ah. and tried to develop a, a, you know, what I call a Hobbesian and, and then functionalist model of judgment, and then a Spinozist vision of judgment in uh you know as an action that um increases or decreases our our joy and our capacity to act yeah, the fundamental see i don't remember spinoza ever talking about judgment is that just me or or does he it's, yeah judgment per it's, se, it's not I, a key I, no it's not yeah. a key term for him um but it does it does come in here and there and you can actually like string together quite a convincing account um, <laughs> and consideration of judgment um, specifically in the political treatise, it becomes... Ah, I see, I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, but yeah, I have been led very much to to revise um, my considerations of, of Spinoza to the point that actually I've started to understand why um, Pierre Machere's book, Hegel or Spinoza, yeah. was so important for a generation of um, critical theorists and, yes. and, and philosophers in France, um, whereby if you were basically a left-wing yes. um, thinker, then either you were going to go with Spinoza or with some vision of the, of the dialectic. Yes. You know, and so... And most of... Uh, I mean, I suppose Althusser, the Machere's teacher in Balibar, they, they, yeah. they, the, the choice is Spinoza for that for that generation yeah. for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you, I mean, I imagine, you know, part of part of your interest... To come back to, to, come back to anatomy of... Of failure. I mean, part of your interest in Spinoza. I mean, I think there is an interest in uh, the in republicanism in a in a certain way. I mean, we've both uh, read Bad You. I, I mean, I, I know you're aware of, of some of the ways in which, much more so than me, in fact, uh, uh, a certain republican, a certain invocation of the French Republic can be used in these kind of um, uh, scary xenophobic right-wing ways and so Absolutely. on but I think but I think uh, I think this notwithstanding there's still something in in the tradition of of republicanism of both of both the the English so I suppose we could think of the Dutch Republic with with Spinoza and and the French Republic with its yeah. with its slogans that does that does interest you like in terms of well the there certainly is I mean there's a there's a 
a large intersection between my work and, and various work on, on radical republicanism. Um, and I seem to, you know, continually cross paths with um, the republican tradition. You know, I've spent a fair amount of time reading Machiavelli. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, Skinner and Pocock and... and Cambridge School. Yeah, yeah, the Cambridge School yeah. were pretty important in the research for Anatomy of Failure, even though they don't turn up at all in, no, the, actual, yeah. in the actual work. It was something yeah. that you, you do need to negotiate. The thing is, is that I, I you know, I, I completely share um, in Badju's line on this, and that is that, you know, if there's an emancipatory political praxis which emerges, it will carry with it new names. Yes, you know, I, I agree and, with this too. Yeah. And the thing, the fact is, is that La République itself doesn't have that many emancipatory significations at this moment. No, you know, it, it's one on the I, contrary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's you know, laïcité is a stigmatization of certain young women. Of Muslims with hijabs, of yeah. Muslim women, poor Muslim women wearing, yeah. wearing the hijab yeah. or, or and it's, something like And that. it's a completely yeah. gratuitous, um, useless and yes. offensive stigmatization yes. of a part of the population um, who needs to be um, welcomed and, and, and listened to, basically. I mean, I've got it at a level of, you know, one of my students just after the Paris attacks um, is from Libya and she, you know, wears the um, hijab and... Um, she was absolutely fantastic in organising our morning ceremony um, after, the Paris, yeah, yeah. after the Paris attacks, yeah. and was one of the ones who said, "Look, let's you know maybe we can think about people who've died in Beirut as well, and of in course, Iraq, yeah. and not yeah. just think, oh, that's normal, they're war-torn countries, we don't need to worry about them.'" Yes. She said, "You know, let's think about them as well." Yes, indeed. And she recounted to me that um, she'd been spat on in the street. That's that's so disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that um, that some. Some woman had come up, come up to her because she was smiling and said, "Well, I suppose you think it's all good then." That, uh, that's and yeah. she said, "You know." And so that level of, you know, reaction um, and affect. I mean, you, it's one thing to think, "Oh my God, the most horrific politics are now about to be unleashed in Paris because of these events." Yes, and that was, I remember, state of emergency yeah, yeah. and the rest. Yeah, and that was my first thought when I saw, you know, when I saw when I was in front of the television screen when I saw 9-11 happening as well. Sure. It's one thing to think that. It's one thing to deal with one's own negative affects. Yes, indeed. And it's another thing completely to suddenly realise that all of the, the entire political field is going to actually be reproduced yet again and you're going to get like absolutely um, um, knee-jerk, instinctual... Uh, stupid reactions occurring just as you do with any political issue whatsoever even with this which is quite so serious and so people just doing these these bigoted things on the on the street um, for me is you know it's just absolutely obscene because yes at a certain level um, yes there's the national unity that that Hollande and, and Valls that they that they speak about but there's also um, a unity in shock and in scarring uh, that actually you do, you did feel, you still feel on the streets of Paris. Yes. Um, irregardless of who you are. Yes. People were quieter on the metro. People were not chatting on the metro. Some people were just like staring into space. Yes. You know, I mean, was it the right thing to go to work? Were we going to be safe? That kind of thing. Um, and then just also just trying to absorb what had happened. So you have, you know, across all of the diversity of, of you know, people in different train carriages and on different train lines, you had this absolute stupefaction, you know, this happened in, a, in, in our city. Um, 
And it was, you know, it's a very heterogeneous population as well that was targeted in the 11th arrondissement and would have been targeted in the Stade de France if, you know, if, you know, heaven forbid they'd been successful as, you know, really successful at Stade de France. Yes, yeah. Um, Stadium. Mm. So you did, you did actually have some kind of very strange uh, unity which has its own kind of dignity um, that, as far as I was concerned, should have just been maintained without people wanting to immediately start stigmatizing and dividing and... That's right. Yeah. That's. I mean, it, it's it's funny because I think I think it it recalls the the difference between the between the universality between universality as generic, which maybe you saw a glimpse of in that in those yeah. moments of solidarity, as opposed to like something that traverses and cuts across all the lines of division, as opposed to the false universality, which I think you're right to say the the signifier of the republic re represents now which yeah. is which is no these are there are all of these foreign bodies on the on the sort of precious like achievement of our republic and 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 you get something like laicite like secularization you used as this word for secularity uh, as yeah. this as this um uh, this word of, of division, right? A way to say these others, these, they do not belong to the universal and therefore it is as if they are inhuman because everyone must belong to the universal, right? Yeah. Like who, who could be a, who could be, who could exile themselves from the universal republic unless they were a monster or exactly, something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's what I call the pleasures of expulsion. It, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so Very there's, absolutely. there's a moment, and it, it also occurred, like I actually wrote a paper on um, the so-called riots, the civil disturbances in November 2005. 2005, the Yeah. And what was fascinating there was you could actually show that uh, the proclamations on the part of Sarkozy and Dominique Villepin at the time, who was yeah. Prime Minister, yeah. and Sarkozy was Minister of the Interior, their proclamations with regard to this, um, the cause of the civil disturbances, were basically you could map them according to the formula of sexuation in Encore. Oh, right. Yes. So <laughs> oh, how, you're you're going to yeah. have to explain. <laughs> so Sarkozy, of course, was um, saying uh, these are illegal immigrants. Yeah. Um, these are people who do not belong, who are instigating these disturbances. They don't have papers. Um, and uh, I will say that, you know, you know, I am the one who will name them as the criminal elements that need to be expelled from the Republic. So there's this sort of rhetoric of exceptionalism ah. and of um, saying those people are not French, yet they are French. So they, they need to be, um, they need to be expelled. Like they're part of, they're causing trouble within the safe space of the Republic. Um, and yet they are not French and they need to be expelled. So it's a reassertion of unity through expelling the the foreigner so you're saying is this the masculine you're saying you're saying where there's a there's universality but then there's an exception or yeah. like the, the yeah. masculine form the and, form. and the universal comes to work precisely through designating the exception yeah right? yeah exactly and it, and it yeah. becomes virile through doing that yes and then um dominique lupin said not all <laughs> use the word <laughs> not all parts of our physical territory are covered by the republic like i you know the, 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 or in other terms, the French Republic itself is incomplete with regard to the actual physical territory that it supposedly covers. And when people talk about zones of, yeah. of, of non-law, um, that comes closer to, to Villepin's um, formulation. And um, it reminds me, you know, we were talking about Pynchon earlier, it reminds yeah. me of the zone 
of ah, Berlin yes. as a zone in the post-war period um, in Gravity's Rainbow. The maddest and most wonderful part of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, which you, uh, which uh, I, I remember you, you, some of your own uh, nomenclature in Anatomy of Failure, there's a tribute to that section. Yeah, of, of... yeah, yeah, there's the action zone. Yeah. Um, and, and basically, yeah, and that, that idea of the action zone does come from the work on on Paris and those disturbances in which I actually ah, argue ah. for the accuracy of um, Villepin's um, diagnosis, but to be taken in a far more positive sense, which is that France is not a whole. Yes. France has parts that go beyond its yes. boundaries. Yes. And those parts include all of its first, second and third generation migrants, yes. whose roots stretch back to various visions of the mother country and thus go back to include the mother country, whether it's Algeria or Tunisia or Russia or wherever. And, and those roots are present as they go through the generations um, of migrants in, you know, what Rousseau calls the people's mores, you know, the people's mm. um, customs and habits and, and, and opinions. Um, and so those both ex-colonies and then other countries that have been important in terms of immigration towards France um, are actually part of French political. Okay, so the idea is that um, when you ac when you actually manage to bring about a performance that causes a theatrical event uh, to occur, both for the actors and for the audience members, what's actually at stake is the manifestation of, I would say, at least more than two subjectivities. And I think that there was a, um, a really brilliant panel earlier on today on the entire concept of the scene um, at yes. ASCP. I should say to you listeners that Oliver and I are at um, the Australasian Society for Continental Philosophy Conference at the moment. Please continue on. Absolutely. And um, one of the things that really struck me, um, I think it was in, in um, Joseph's um, talk, was his use of Laplanche and Pontalis's um, concept of the scheme. And he pointed out that the of the scene um, of fantasy and of the variable positions that the subject can take with regard to that scene, the syntax of that scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the connection that I made is that what happens when you've got a genuine scene happening theatrically is that you have more than, I would say, at least more than two people acting. It's not just the typical Greek antagonists. And you have more than two possible regards or um, orientations that are possible within the architecture of the actual space of the scene. And this is like, this is a... A, a challenge and a practical problem that um, confronts me also as a um, when I do a little bit of work as a as a director in theatre, um, and it's simply a question of staging and it's a question of where are your actors in space mm -hmm. and how do they actually spatialize each other? Mm -hmm. um, and I was saying um, to Joseph, you know, I think this is one of the things that philosophers always forget when they're thinking theatre is that theatre is fundamentally um, something that happens at the level of bodies and spaces. Yes. And I'm not going to join in this great rush to, um, to think the body that's occurring, that has been occurring for the last 30 years, because what I want to do is I want to think um, bodies that are moving um, in space yes. and time. So it's actually the, it's, it's not the nature of one person's particular body, it's the articulation of different bodies um, in a spatial and temporal sense that can open up and manifest the possibilities for different subjective um, subjectivizations and subjective positions in one and the same space, mm -hmm. and I think for me that's the, that's the, the the 
practical challenge for theatre um, is manifesting that, and it's something that's quite rarely achieved. You seem to see a, an analogy or homology there with uh, politics, if I'm not mistaken. There's there's a theatrical element of some some reprise of this problem of of bodies and the configuration yeah. of spaces. Or... Well, <coughs> the, the relationship is very complicated because the articulation between politics and, and, and theatre is a simple articulation. We we think that we you know we think that the Greeks had that kind of articulation, and there's a there's a triangulation in between education, the city state, and theatre. Yes, that is precisely philosophy's rivalrous sort of fear and projection with regard to theatre. Indeed, especially for Plato. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. he, he wants to dominate that triangulation and, and there he has theatre doing it. And I think that for me, the closest that contemporary theatrical practice and dance, I include dance in this as well and performance art, the closest that it gets to the kind of political thinking that interests me is when it has this one single imperative which is stage more than one scene at the same time. How can you get scenes happening in parallel such that you don't have the linear unfolding of a plot or a sequence of actions or whatever? You've got things happening simultaneously um, and your audience members are simply not experiencing the same thing. So you have like, you know, the simplest model um, is, um, and this is something that I, you know, that I, that I really owe to my wife's work, Barbara Formas's work on, um, on happenings. Hmm. And I'm Alan Capro, um, because she basically introduced me to this work. But right. she was um, <coughs> she worked on a reenactment of 18, 18 happenings in six parts in New York, and I went along to um, one of the performances. And the fascinating thing was that they, you know, they constructed perfectly this wood structure which had three compartments, and you would rotate through the three compartments according to a coloured card, telling you when you could move. And each audience member, being part of three different groups, had had a different experience Extreme, to other right. So you'd see different things. You know, something ha was happening, you know, three meters away from you and six meters away from you, but you wouldn't see it. Huh. And you had your own sensual experience. I remember, you know, watching a lot of oranges being squeezed, a lot of <laughs> juice being made, and a lot of paint being slapped on the <laughs> canvas as well. But that was, uh, you know, that's a that's an early '60s exploration, and that's become, I, I think. Um, an even more powerful imperative nowadays um, in theatre, which is, you know, how do you create more than one scene? And I think that's, you know, that's the homology for me with the kind of politics I want to think, which is one in which the principle behind an action is large enough such that the action can occur across different contexts, receive different names, have different embodiments and consequences in those contexts yes and yet you will still be able to reassert some kind of sameness some kind of identity in the way that that action is is named and projected forwards because it's based on a large enough idea yes right so you you need a really large idea to have a principled political action that can bridge contexts. and you would see something similar in in theater i imagine that like the difference between what would be a merely gimmicky, a, a sort of gimmick where you pre you just you just for no reason present simultaneous things on the stage yeah. in a kind of riot, and the difference between, I and and this is actually something the panel Oliver and I um, um, just saw um, Joe Hughes talking about um, uh, apropos of um, um, Phil, uh, some work of Philippe Lacula about some relationship to the. Um, uh, 
some relationship to to the idea and even something like a kind of a kind of incarnation of the idea although I suppose you wouldn't use that term not just because for its religious connotation but you were talking about something like the the I'll I'll have to use Badu in terms like the the way an I the way an idea can be constructed but also manifest appear in in different worlds in in different in different contexts that the same the same thing can can yeah absolutely it's the job's done in Badu's system by the opera of operator of fidelity yes which is which is actually a concept that that people need to do some work on because it does an enormous amount of conceptual work in tying together Badu's system in being an event. Um, and it kind of is replaced in logics of worlds in, in complicated ways. But, um, you know, to go back to the question that you asked about the this so-called autonomy or specificity of the political. Yes. You know, the whole thing about um, uh, Badu's conception of political practice that, that has always fascinated me is that it diagonalizes different areas of social life and it's it's indifferent to um, any kind of established divisions about you know what should be done and who should do it yes but you can have a political practice that that doesn't occur at the level of street protests no and, no and being indeed beaten up by the police indeed indeed but can involve um, some kind of innovation in healthcare yes and and in in making sure that certain you know um, practices get to get to people in their homes instead yes of them having to have this, you know, awful existence as an outpatient, for example. Um, certain practices that can happen at the level of um, of shared housing, uh, of, of of food cooperatives, um, refusing to leave a tennis court, like like saying we're going to stay here. These kind of yeah, yeah, Any, anything. Yeah, yeah. Like sure. I mean, you know, going there, moving yeah, from look, there. Yeah, look, look at children's play. Look at different forms of children's play when it occurs across spaces. Like yes, it is an object of play. Um, so I think that, you know, this is the interesting thing, but the, the coherence of the practice is not guaranteed by pre-existing institutional categories or social categories. Yes. It's guaranteed by this process of invention of the consequences of an event. So there's a referral yes. back to the event. If that happens, you know, what consequences does it, does it have for us here and now? And that's the, the, the coherence that is actually sewn together inquiry by inquiry. Yeah. All right. Um, when you when you in in speaking of of um, um, Badu's Badu's operators of, of fidelity, I, I think one of the things that always struck me about about Badu's work, one of the things I, I I deeply love about Badu's work, is the way in which he he always makes these operations that you you talk about that that they always um, involve, I think, uh, against a, a, a quite common ideological um, discourse, a, a combination of of a sort of absolute rigor and 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 total creativity that that, yeah. that element of creativity and of rigor that it takes and i just want to say uh on that note that um uh professor feltham it's been a great pleasure um I'm talking to you and and i have been um particularly impressed by the extent to which your own uh you have sort of demonstrated this principle in your own answers to my my question you can see you can see that simul- that my questions that simultaneous combination of of rigor and creativity that i think that i think is is the sort of sine qua non in in thought as much as it is in in politics or in art so um thank you very much oliver feltham well thanks very much it's been a real pleasure and let me just say that i hope this um podcast podcast continues to uh, ruin its listeners lives <laughs> in the proper way <laughs> on that on, on that note um this is philosophy can uh, ruin your life um um good night ladies and gentlemen thank you <laughs>